Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com podcast. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you and enjoy. Hello and welcome to PrimeMed's podcast on the role of CGRP inhibitors in preventing episodic and chronic migraine headaches. I'm Jeff Unger and I'm a family physician as well as the director of the Unger Concierge Medical Group. I'm joined today by my very good friend, Dr. Alan Rappaport, who is the clinical professor of neurology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and also past president of the International Headache Society. Before we get started, let me remind everyone that today's session is supported by an independent educational grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals. For more information, please visit primed.com. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. Let me go over what this podcast uh, is going to uh, discuss. We're going to outline the differences between new and traditional medications to prevent migraines, something that we see very commonly in primary care. About 10% of our patients do have uh, migraine as one of their chief complaints. We're also going to provide some top-line information about a new class of medications called CGRP inhibitors. And these uh, drugs are starting to be used in primary care, Ellen, uh, for the treatment of episodic and chronic migraine. So let me ask you first, who should receive preventative treatment for migraine? Well, it's anybody who has too many headaches anybody who has at least four headaches a month, one a week, we start to think about it. But disability has a lot to do with this. So if you had just one headache and it lasted two days and you didn't get better with a triptan and you were quite disabled and you had an important job or you were taking care of your family, that would be too much for you. Um, some people just have a preference to take something so they don't get that headache every now and then. And if people start taking too many acute care medicines, especially pain medications, they'll continue to do it unless you can reduce the frequency of their headaches and you do that with preventives. You know, what, I, what I see is there's always a discussion of tension headache versus migraine headache. Uh, in, in my experience, patients don't come in to get treated for tension headaches. They come in for disabling headaches, which are uh, most likely migraine. Is, is that your experience as well? You're absolutely right. The only time I see tension-type headache patients is when they have so much of it and they take so many analgesics that they come in with medication overuse in addition to their tension-type headache. Most of the time, people with tension-type headache take uh, an NSAID, take a pain medicine, take off their tie, get out of, from under their boss, mm -hmm. go for a jog or just leave work or just relax in some way and they're usually a lot better. It's the yeah. migraineurs that come in with the severe headache and a lot of disability. Another uh, type of headache that we see a lot in primary care uh, which is wrongly diagnosed are sinus headaches. Uh, patients coming in every month for a sinus headache. Uh, how can we differentiate sinus headaches, Alan, from uh, migraine headaches? Well, actually what you should think of when somebody says they have a sinus headache is they probably have migraine. Uh, 
But if you're a general physician and you see a patient every month or two for a sinus headache, think migraine again. But an acute sinus headache usually means you have fever, you've got tenderness over the sinus, you've got bad smelling stuff coming out of your nose and your throat, and you're sick. And it happens once in a while, and you take antibiotics, and it gets better. If that's happening four or five times a year, think migraine. Yeah, the, the, if you look at the, the trigeminal nerve, uh, you've got the first branch of the trigeminal nerve going to the to the forehead. You got the second branch over the going frontal sinuses. Oh, frontal, right? You got the second branch going over the face, over the maxillary sinuses. So if you activate the second branch of the trigeminal nerve, that's going to give you pain. It's very similar to migraine, uh, but there, but because it's over the sinuses, patients are going to say, "I must have sinus headaches." And because of the autonomic fibers that go along with this, you're also going to get some fluid in there mm -hmm. right. and some swelling. And so it's, it can be hard to differentiate, yeah. but... Um, what, about, what about this neck pain? You know, patients come in always rubbing their neck. Uh, are those migraines as well? Well, many of our patients do have kind of a chronic neck pain with their migraine, but then they have the acute migraine attack, which is severe and throbbing and one-sided with nausea and light and sound sensitivity. And that's how you know that it's probably related. And then at the beginning of an attack, they may have referred pain to almost any place in the head or neck. And it's often referred to the neck. And they say, oh, I got this terrible neck pain. And then they come down with the migraine headache. So the neck is involved. And also, if there is a problem in the neck, those nerves are going into the spinal cord and coming up towards the trigeminal nuclei and can induce migraine. So the neck and migraine are very closely related. And when we fix the migraine, usually the neck pain goes away. Most right? of the time. Okay. So, Alan, what do we have in our arsenal for preventing migraine headaches? Well, we have a lot of drugs that we've been using for a long time. Only four of them have been approved by the FDA, but we use about 40 of them. Uh, four approved for episodic migraine and only one for chronic migraine. So the typical class of medications we go with are either the beta blockers, sometimes the calcium blockers, but they work better in cluster headache than they do migraine, the anticonvulsants, and there are only two approved, and we use a lot of antidepressants, and none of them are actually approved by the FDA. And then there are some other unusual drugs as well, off-label, that we use as preventive for migraine. And then for chronic migraine, it's only onobotulinum toxin A um, of the older drugs that are approved. But we have new drugs coming, which are antibodies to calcitonin gene-related peptide, or CGRP, and they can be used in both episodic migraine and chronic migraine. When does a patient develop chronic migraine? What's the definition of chronic migraine? So chronic migraine is anyone with migraine who has 15 or more days a month of headache, eight of which are migraine days. And by migraine days, I mean it's a really severe headache like I just described before that lasts for hours with a lot of disability, or the patient says, I'm getting a migraine, and they take a triptan or an ergot, and it never reaches the migraine status. So it's really very simple. It's just migraine with 15 days of headache a month, and they have to have eight migraine days. All right, so you mentioned these uh, new drugs are called CGRP inhibitors. 
How do they differ from some of the older, more traditional types of meds uh, that we use very commonly in primary care for, for a lot of different uh, uh, common medical problems? First, I'll just mention that CGRP is a 37 amino acid peptide that circulates through the body and stimulates certain receptors. And it's all over the brain and it's in nerves, peripheral nerves, and it's especially in the first branch of the trigeminal nerve, which we call the trigeminovascular system, going from the brainstem out to the um, uh, ganglion, trigeminal ganglion, and then all the way out to the blood vessels and nerves in the periphery, which means the meninges. So this substance, when it hits its receptor, increases pain. And we found a long time ago in various studies that the levels are high in migraine and they go down when you give somebody a tryptan. And if in a study they gave intravenous CGRP to patients with migraine and they all developed headaches and some of them developed migraines later on. <clears throat> so it became clear that it was important in migraine. It's not the cause of migraine, but it has a lot to do with migraine. So they started inventing and working on these antibodies which block CGRP and block the CGRP receptor. So the difference between these drugs and the old drugs, the old drugs were designed for other reasons, for hypertension and for um, epilepsy. These drugs were designed specifically to knock out CGRP for migraine. The old drugs had loads of side effects. Topiramate's an excellent drug. Beta blockers work well in migraine, but they have loads of baggage that come along with them so that at the end of one year, 80% of people who are put on a preventive drug are no longer on that drug. The old drugs took about one month to get up to the right therapeutic level and another month to see if it worked and another month to raise the dose a little more. These new drugs start to work in the first month and some of them have been shown in studies to work as early as one week. And as far as effectiveness goes, if you had great effectiveness from one of the older drugs, that was good. But when you measure what percentage of people have half of their headaches gone at the end of a month, for the old drugs it was 40-45%, maybe 50%. For the newer antibodies, it's usually 50% or more for most of the patients, 50% for 50% of the patients, um, half their headaches will be gone, but a smaller percentage, about 20, 21%, will have three quarters of their headaches gone, and a very small percentage, 10 or 15%, will have no more headaches when they're on this drug. Right, so, so there's quite a difference. <laughs> I'd still need to know a little bit more about CGRP. Um, so you, you get a migraine trigger in a, in a patient that's very sensitive. Uh, they have a, a lot of sensitivity to neurological stimuli. The, the trigger causes the release of CGRP from the first branch of the trigeminal nerve. That CGRP molecule then binds to a receptor and you get migraine pain. Is that right? That's exactly right, and they're working right now on where is it released? People now think it may be from the trigeminal ganglion, which is next to the brainstem, but it's actually outside the central nervous system. And the same nerve that has the CGRP doesn't have the CGRP receptor, so it's got to travel to another nerve. And then that information goes 
into the brainstem and causes the migraine. And then that information goes up to the thalamus and all kinds of things happen. So for treatment, we've got two strategies. We could block the CGR receptor, CGRP receptor. If there's no uh, receptor action, you cannot get headache. Correct. And the second option is to pretend like these CGRPs are little asteroids. You could knock them off target so you, they don't you block. You could actually bind to that target so it can't dock on the receptor. So the whole thing is... If you can prevent CGRP from docking on a receptor either way, you're going to prevent some of the pain from migraine. All right. Well, good to know. So what treatments do you try, Ellen, before you start using a CGRP inhibitor? If somebody came to me and had 10 headache days a month with a lot of disability and their tryptans weren't working that well, I'd say, I want to put you on a preventive medication to decrease the disability and decrease the number of headaches. And then I'd find out what you've been on before. And if you're one of the few patients I see, maybe two a year, that say, <laughs> I've never been on anything before, uh -huh. I might start with one of the older drugs and explain to them that there are slightly more side effects from these drugs, but they're pills. You take one a day or sometimes it's two a day. And I'd try one or maybe two to see if they worked. The other reason for doing this, if they had insurance and wanted to try one of the newer antibodies, for sure their insurance company will say they have to have failed at least two, maybe three categories of preventive medications like the ones we just talked about. But if you came in and said, look, I'm a millionaire. I don't want to deal with insurance companies. Matter of fact, I don't even have insurance. Give me what you think is best. I would still, if you've never been on anything, I'd describe the earlier preventives, and I'd talk about this one and say, which one do you want? But after I say, that has a lot of side effects, and this has very few, that one you take twice a day by mouth, this one you take once a month or once every three months by injection, and that one works about 40% of the time, and this works 50% or more, they probably say, well, I'll go with the new one. All right, what, what are some of the available CGRP inhibitors on the market? This is my favorite part of the talk because I get to have you mention the names of these uh, drugs, the generic names. Well, I don't know how to pronounce those names. You do. Oh, okay. <laughs> so um, the one that came out first is Arinumab, which is also called Amovig, and that's the only one that actually binds to the receptor. It's a monoclonal antibody that binds to the receptor so that the CGRP ligand cannot get to the receptor. The next one to come out was Fremenezumab or Ajovi, and the one after that was Galcanezumab or Emgality. Those two bind to the CGRP itself and prevent it from docking on the receptor. And the one that wasn't approved yet by the FDA is eptinezumab, um, and it doesn't have a name yet. Or if it has one, they haven't told me. So you can use this for both episodic and chronic Any migraine. kind of migraine at all. I don't even have to think about it. <laughs> That's easy. How, how effective are these uh, agents uh, in the class that we have, CGRP inhibitors? So if I talk about what's in the literature, I would say... A good 50% of the patients will have half their headaches gone at the end of every month. If they're really lucky, it may be more than half. And if they're a little unlucky, it may be 45, 47% of them will have half their headaches gone. 
As I mentioned before, a smaller percentage, about one in five, but you can say to your patients, you have a one in five chance of having three quarters of your headache days gone. And if you win the sweepstakes, you have no headaches left. And that's about 10% of patients. Pretty, you know, we get uh, this question a lot from, from uh, uh, patients with migraine. They say 50%. That's not good enough. I get headaches nearly every day. I want more. So I, the way I explain it, Ellen, is that, look, uh, if you start off with Bill Gates's money, all that money, and then we reduce it by 50%, you're down to the Oprah Winfrey level. You don't have to be slashing your wrist. That's a good thing. And 50% it's a good way reduction, to look at it. Yeah, 50% reduction is pretty powerful. And you know what we're seeing, too? We think this is true. It hasn't been proven yet that not only is it only half the number of days of headache, but your acute care medicine may work a little bit better. So when you get a headache, it may get knocked out faster or more completely. How do I choose which CGRP inhibitor to, to use first? That's uh, an easy so one. Many, there's so many, I can't pronounce any of them. So which one is your favorite, Alan? That's an easy one. Um, there's no good answer to that question. They do have samples for each one of these. So it's what's in the closet. Yeah. That's one way you can choose. You can give a patient a sample and then write a prescription for them. Or you try some of your patients on one, some on the second, some on the third. One day we may see that one is working a little better than another or one is more tolerated than another. Today it's too early to say that. And none of these have been studied against each other in what we call a head-to-head -head study. Mm -hmm. So we will not and we may never have any really well-designed study that shows which one is better. There may be academic centers that do a study like that, but the companies will never study their drug against okay. another because they're approximately the same when you look at the clinical trials. How are these uh, drugs administered? How difficult it is to, to use these drugs? I'd like to ask you, how big is the pill? And then the other question is, uh, how often could we use these medications? Right. So there's a little bit difference for each one of them, so I'll go over it carefully. So galcanezumab uh, comes as an auto-injector, so you just put it on your thigh or your abdomen or your upper arm and you push a button, but it also comes in a pre-filled syringe. And you might ask, why would they do that and make somebody inject themselves? Some patients actually find it hurts less when they have control over how quickly that plunger goes down. That's given only monthly, and the patients do pretty well, and at the end of the next month, they get another shot. Fremenezumab is the only one of the four that the patient has a choice. Do they take it once a month, or do they take it every three months? So really, once a quarter of a year, which is only four injection days a year. It only comes in a self-injector, meaning if they want to take it once a month, they inject themselves with a needle, um, and it lasts, you know, for 10, 15 seconds, and that's it for the month. Or they inject themselves three times the same day, and then they don't have to inject again for three months. Arenumab, again, an auto-injector only once a month. The one that's not out yet, eptinezumab, is going to be quite different. It's an intravenous infusion where the patient goes into the doctor's office and gets an infusion, and that only has to be done every three months. So um, they're all a little bit different, and I haven't had anybody complain about either the self-injecting 
with a pre-filled syringe or the auto-injector. It's whatever they're willing to do. And you ask, you would ask a question if you know you wanted to take it. Should I take it every month or should I take it every three months? The answer is it's really up to a discussion with the patient. It's patient choice. Sure. I think I'd rather do it every three months myself, but it's totally up to the patient. These are pretty easy to use. I would They're assume. quite easy to use, and if the patient says, "Hey, I can't inject myself, even with the auto injector," come into your office and you inject it for them. What about the safety of these drugs? This is a new class. What do we know about it, Alan? They're extremely safe. They have a few side effects, no serious side effects. The major side effects are constipation and injection site reactions. In very rare cases, somebody might react to the drug and have to be taken off it and given a little steroid. That's very rare. But basically, I say to my patients, after you inject, you're going to feel a little pain from the injection. You'll, feel a little, you'll see a little redness, maybe a little swelling, and it should be gone. Once in a blue moon, they'll get a little black and blue mark. Um, some patients get some constipation, a little bit more with the arenumab with, than with the others. And the way we treat that is we either say, if it's not that bad, wait another month, take another injection. It's probably going to go away. And if it really bothers them, we stop it. And in my personal situation, I've given them another one of the drugs, one of the other two. And so far, they haven't gotten constipation from the next one. Are there any... Uh uh, drug um, interactions that we need to be concerned about or patients that you would not give this injection to? The wonderful thing about this drug is there are basically no drug-drug interactions. So you can give this drug with any other drug. I've even had a couple of patients that were taking another monoclonal antibody <clears throat> for Crohn's disease, and I checked with both the pharmacies and the companies, and I did some reading, and the answer is you can take two antibodies at the same time as long as they don't interfere okay. with the immune system. Okay. What about pregnancy in, in uh, children, like uh, anybody under age 18? Good question. Their... Another easy question to answer. It's not approved under the age of 18, so do not give it during pregnancy and do not give it to children yet. Um, it will be studied in children, and my prediction is it will be okay for children at some point in time. Mm. And the other important thing to mention about pregnancy, these drugs have a very long half-life of one month. It takes five half-lives to get a drug totally out of the body. So if you're talking to a woman of childbearing potential and you say to her, I don't want you to get pregnant on this drug, and she says at the end of a month, okay, I decide I want to get pregnant, that drug isn't out of her body for four more months. So you have to explain to women, once you take an injection, you can't get pregnant for five months. Do we know that something bad is going to happen if they get pregnant? No, but we don't know what's going to happen. So that's why we say don't use it in pregnancy. What about patients with stroke that have migraine or people that have uh, cardiovascular risk? So there are no contraindications. So if the patient has liver disease, ordinarily we'd be cautious about giving a drug. If they have renal disease, we'd be cautious about giving a drug. In this case, you don't have to worry because it's not excreted in the kidneys or the liver. I'd still be uh, appropriately cautious. But now you bring up a more troubling question. What about stroke or heart attack? Well, it's not contraindicated. The trouble is CGRP is a vasodilator. 
And when you block a vasodilator, as we do when we give an antibody that ties it up, then we prevent blood vessels from dilating when you're about to get a heart attack. But the reason we're not that worried about it is because there are other vasodilators in the body that we think take over. So all I can say about that is the studies don't show anything serious. They've done some studies in people with angina, very carefully done studies which don't show a problem. But if you send me a patient that's had a heart attack or has TIAs, I may say, let's send that patient to an appropriate person to get studied a little further. The answer's going to come back. We don't see any contraindication. Should these drugs be prescribed by primary care providers, including nurse practitioners, PAs, uh, family physicians, internal medicine, or, or do we have to send them all to you, Alan? I know you're a busy guy, but can so, we use them? That's a very good question, and I don't have the right answer, but here's my answer. At the very beginning, we know a lot more about CGRP because we've been studying it for a few years now as these drugs have been tested. Once generalists and nurses learn what CGRP is, learn what it does, learn what happens when you block it, then it's a piece of cake to give an injection. You do that all day long. Um, and as I say, there are very few side effects. There are very few or no contraindications. So there's not much to worry about, and you can worry about whatever happens just as well as I can. So I think this would be appropriate for generalists. I'm afraid the insurance company may not feel the same way, and they may try to block it, but I think that's restraint of trade, and I don't sure. think they should do that. But um, So at the very beginning, I'd be real cautious about it, but I see this as a drug that general physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs should be able to give. I mean, the safety is excellent. Uh, the ease of injection is very simple. If you understand uh, a little bit about the mechanism of migraine yeah. and want to get your patients better, I see no reason why uh, we can't use this in primary I care. I would agree completely. What happens, Alan, if you put them on drug A and the patient doesn't respond, can you use drug B? Right. So most of the studies have been three-month or six-month studies. And so when somebody says to me at the end of one month, hey, Dr. Rappaport, you told me I'd be better in the first month, and I'm not better at all. I say, I see that. Um, I'd like you to try it. First thing I'll do is, do you have any side effects? If they have bad side effects, I'll take them off. But if they don't have bad side effects, I will say to them, I want you to try it for three months, because that's what the study was. And yes, you should have been better by now, but let's give it a little time. And then at the end of a second, and certainly at the end of a third month, if they say, this isn't working, I will say to them, I want to try one of the other drugs on you. And one month after I've given an injection of drug A, I will give an injection of drug B. Right. No my, side effects doing that. My final question, Alan, is when should we be referring patients to a headache specialist or a neurologist? Is there a difference between a neurologist and a headache specialist? There is in that about half the neurologists are much more interested and have done a lot more work on certain aspects of neurology like epilepsy or MS and they may not even care much about headache and they certainly don't know enough about it because they don't treat too many of those patients. So if you blindly send a patient to a neurologist, you may get one that really doesn't know that much about it even sure. though they might know more than you do. And so Headache specialists pretty much do nothing but headache. They know more than the average neurologist, and they're the right patient to get to see, but there are very few of us 
there are about 520 board-certified headache specialists, and there are 50 million people with migraine in this country. So we don't see a very large percentage of the patients. So some of them do have to go to general neurologists. But when to send? It's a difficult question, but I would say this. If you know you have your right diagnosis and you've gone over the patient carefully and you know it's migraine and you've tried them on a preventive medicine and it doesn't work and you've tried them on a second and it doesn't work and they're not responding well to the triptan that you've given them, that's the time to send them. Some doctors will send them a little earlier because they know that to get to that point might take six months and they don't want the patient to work, to wait. Some doctors hold on to their patients a little bit longer. <clears throat> so when you're starting to feel like somebody might do a better job, that's the time to send them. Well, thank you very much, Alan. It's been uh, great talking again about uh, CGRP inhibitors and migraine. So let's summarize. Prevention of migraine should really be based on patient preference. And uh, sometimes we have to increase the number of medications these patients are on in order to mitigate their uh, uh, risk of medication overuse syndrome and transforming from episodic to chronic migraine. Our definition of success for treating migraine is a 50% uh, reduction in headache response or a 50% reduction in uh, headache frequency, intensity, and duration. We want to consider using CGRP inhibitors for patients who have failed other preventative medications. And as you mentioned, Ellen, there are some patients, maybe 10% of patients, end up getting no migraines, have a total uh, a reduction of their uh, headache frequency with the use of CGRPs. But most patients can expect a 50 to 60% improvement. Again, there are some super responders, and you really don't know until the time comes to, to try these drugs. Correct. So CGRP inhibitors also, as you mentioned, are very safe. They, there's no drug inter inter interactions, uh, and uh, they seem to be a perfect uh, fit for primary care. And many of our primary care patients are using multiple other drugs. You always hear about side effects and interactions, but you probably will not see them with the CGRPs. Thank you very much, Alan. You're welcome. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com podcast. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.